0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Spry Therapeutics, products that I've been using and loving for the last few years. The Spry Recovery Pillow is made with Flowform, a unique moldable technology that allows you to mold it into any shape without it returning to its original shape until you remold it. When you lean into it, it kind of feels like vegan butter. It fits seamlessly into your yoga practice, offering extra support by contouring to your specific curves, promoting proper body alignment. The recovery pillow is perfect for providing comfort and support in shavasana, meditation, and I also like to use it for stretches like pigeon. By redistributing pressure and reducing stress on your joints, this pillow is also amazing for post-yoga recovery, helping you maintain proper body alignment and helping with back and neck pain. The removable cover can be easily washed, and the pillow itself can be wiped down with any household cleaner, just like you would do with your yoga mat, which is super safe for sanitizing for viruses like COVID. Recover well with Spry and use code LITFRIEND to receive a 20% discount. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Wednesday Q&A, where you ask the questions and we answer. I'm here with my lovely, wonderful friend, co-host, physical therapist extraordinaire, Kristen Williams, otherwise known as KB. Welcome. Hey, Laura. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So, you have a question. So, why don't you get us started?
2: All right, great. So, this is from our friend Julie Miller, our little Aussie out there. Uh, She emailed me and said, I could ask a question while I'm here. We were talking about something else. She's like, I suppose I could ask a question while I'm here. Adductor tendonitis, soccer player, any tips for healing and rehab? And I don't know about you, but that's who I have seen that adductor tendonitis in a lot. I think um, soccer players, because of not only the kick they're kicking, they're moving a ball around with their feet. That's a lot of agility in that sport. And so there's a lot of tugging on the adductor and there can be an overuse that goes on and then they get, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing as a physical therapist to treat because um, especially on younger you know, guys, it's a very vulnerable area, but we got to get in there and um, do some soft tissue sometimes. But they do respond well to physical therapy, I've found. You know, so tips for that. You know, the tips for rehab. As it's kind of feel like, do you kind of feel like a broken record sometimes? Because we're always like, we gotta look. We know where the injury is, but we gotta look somewhere else. You know, what? Where does the adductor attach? It attaches to the pubic symphysis. You know, so what does the pelvis look like? What does the outer hip look? You know, look like? What does that mean? The core. A lot of times, you have, especially with, and I'm thinking soccer. These aren't like MLS soccer guys, but these are college or high school kids who don't always have the strongest core to support what they're asking of their bodies. And so their legs will take the brunt. So, you know, flexibility, eccentric lengthening type work. You know, they don't do any side lunges ever. So getting into that side lunge Uh, and then some soft tissue, you know, getting into some soft tissue massage. I like to just, you know, either use some sort of a tool. Or just my knuckles, getting some length, getting some blood flow to the area. What do you think?
0: I, I totally agree. I, I've worked with some of the soccer players at every, all levels, and it does seem to be more of the younger group, mm-hmm. uh, not the professional group, that have the adductor tendonitis. And it's exactly what you said. A lot of what I've noticed with a lot of them is their deep, pro, you know, proximal muscles, their deep core are just not turning on and stabilizing the pelvis. So there's a lot of anterior tilt and then they really rely on all that force production from their legs. And you can do that over and over again till a certain point. And then tendonitis happens because the tendon has been tugged on with its stress. It's where stress meets too much demand and there's not enough counter-stability so that tendonitis occurs. Inflammation, pain... Uh, so I totally agree. Soft tissue is great. I've taught them, you know, how to do their with the heel of their own hand, taking a butter knife and kind of yeah. scraping along there to get yeah. some yeah to get some of that inflammatory stuff out, and then really teaching the restructuring of neutral pelvis, working their glutes, gluteus medius, gluteus maximus, are surprisingly for very leg dominant sport are not as strong as they need to be. Maybe they're stronger than the average person, but for the demands placed, for the power, agility, adaptability, yes, all that like switching and direction. So side lunges are great. Holding a side lunge for a little bit longer to get into that pectineus and some of the other adductors that extend all the way down to the knee and doing some like front lunges where they're like going forward and then coming back and moving again with that neutral pelvis, having their feedback with their hands kind of pancaking in front and in back so they're not tipping and jamming into the knee because all of those muscles that attach from the pelvis to the knee need to be balanced, well-balanced. And so even though the quads are, you know, we often admire the quadriceps on soccer players, they need to be strong, but the hamstrings need to be strong for all that eccentric demand placed upon them. The glutes need to participate. So their low back is another big place of injury for soccer players that are imbalanced. and so yeah, I think it's all of the above like we, what we've said you have to work and that's why I'm always surprised even when people have been going to like physical therapy or they've gone to their trainers that they've never addressed the fact that these kids, so many of them are like walking running around an anterior tilted pelvis and they just kind of get you of course they can you know I say you can continue to execute a movement. It's not that having your skeleton slightly in out of balance, Limits it totally, but what it does is it places unequal strain or end demand on certain areas. So adductors are one of them for sure. So I think, um, yeah, kind of rewinding and working on global core strength is huge. Absolutely. Well, on the on the uh, topic of legs and hips, I got a question from T Bob. Uh, T Bob asks: Box jumps, yes or no? So I think what he's referring to I mostly see him like in the CrossFit world. I'm sure you know other other forms of athletes do it as well but hopping up and then hopping down on the on the boxes. So I'd love to hear what you have to say
2: and then I'll comment
0: as well. Yeah, you
2: know, we definitely have those boxes in clinics. To be honest, uh the way healthcare works right now we are seeing them in the acute phase and then they're leaving us a lot of times before they get to that, which is unfortunate because I do think it's very case-specific. There are activities, there are sports. So think about any of your jumping sports, particularly let's say basketball, volleyball, things where you're trying to get height to, and then have to come back down from that height. It is important to know how to do that well. So a box jump comes in very handy when you're retraining something. So, jumping up, jumping down for that eccentric control coming down, we tend to start slow, taking large step-ups on those box, step down off the box, and then yes, progressing to single leg, double leg if we're able to hold on to somebody that long. The problem I see with box jumps is in, you know, if you don't there are a lot of really good CrossFit instructors who can watch someone and and help them out, but if you don't have that Or in a CrossFit scenario where you have, let's say, the workout of the day that has got a bajillion burpees or whatever before the box jump, you know, when you're fatigued and you're asking that of the body, it is setting it up to fail. So you just have to be careful. So for training, very specific purposes, I think they're great, but you really have to watch your technique. You have to watch the tracking of the knee, the hinging of the hip, the use of the glute, the control of the legs with the uh, patella. Because if you're going to be in a sport where you're doing that, it's important. And it's a great way to really, we'll use it rehab post-injury where somebody has never done that well. Say ACL tears, classic for females. You know, females, we have the wider pelvis. We have a tendency to dip in a lot of times, more so than men. Men do it also, but women do it worse. So it's a great way. Use a mirror, let them see it. We put sticky, you know, sticky notes on the mirror so they can keep their knee tracking in line with that. They're great, but it has to be used with caution and with precision, in my opinion. What about you?
0: I absolutely agree. I think they're wonderful. However, they're wonderful if you have adequately prepared. And what I've seen with people that have, you know, like we always learn from from unfortunately when people get injured but we can kind of just like use our logical reasoning and understand like what could lead to that. So the repetitiveness, like I actually treated somebody, you know, this was four years ago who was doing a box jump after at CrossFit, after all the other things and was like, you know, for one minute, as many times as he could. And he started to just lose sensation down his leg. And sure enough, he had herniated a disc. Now, did it cause the herniation? Probably not, but his he was set up for that and that was a perfect thing to make it happen. He lost his form. He was trying to do as fast as he could. Technique was out the window and the strain was put on his back and boom, herniated disc. You know, he sat down, lost kind of almost all feeling down into his leg, like couldn't walk. You know, it was really like dramatic version. So we look at like, well, what happened? A, technique, his technique was probably not great. Was it because he was fatigued? He was trying to so that's the thing with crossFit. Again, I agree with you. Like there's so many good instructors. And I think there's value into doing repetition. I think you have to balance out, are you doing as many as you can with good form? And that's where the instructor's got to be watching you like a hawk because it can't be just like trying to go for this number and losing losing the form. The second thing I've seen with issues with the box jumping, is the height of the box. And so what I often say is, because I used to teach step aerobics, like start low, start to get everything used to the jumping up and jumping down. So that's starting from the feet, that's starting from the plantar fascia into the Achilles, into the calf, hamstrings, glutes, and then you know all the proximal core muscles that we talk about. If you could start low, like there's nothing wrong, like doing a little bunny hop up, like you're just doing the curb and then get higher of course because you're going to need that push off and that being able to like you said controlled landing basketball players totally need that but i think that i i wonder like how high is really valuable i think that you don't have i've seen some of the boxes in these um in crossfit and in gyms i just think they're too high i think in most pt clinics we start really low and we get like a medium I haven't seen many that are getting to that high, high box, which really requires triple flexion, triple extension, power, adaptability, and great form. So I, I would rather somebody do repetitive ones with a getting a spring, a reload, coil spring with you know the lower box um, and really good form than trying to get really high. So I think that you're gonna put more demand on the tendons with the with that deep bend. And coil and spring. If you're not prepared, but I, I do think, yeah, like you said, it's case specific. It's a great exercise. If you never do it, that's also okay, right? Uh, you yeah. can practice plyo right on your mat, and you're getting some of that same effect. But if for for certain sports, it's really great to load, put the demand on the tendons, getting their kind of spring ability ready. Uh, but you you have to ramp up and meet, you know, like all those things. The technique, the form, the repetition, and the height. So it's a lot of yep. elements. Yeah. It's kind of like when people say, you know, like elevated push ups. They're great if you're ready for that. You know, for a yeah, lot of right. people, if they lose their form, you're loading some major tendons and they're just not going to be happy. So is it wrong to do that? No, it's like, but just really prepare. You can't go, you can't go gung ho into anything. The body's smart but it's based a lot on your own experience and habit. So you have, it's like building an environment that's new, new for the body, new for you, and just go slow. All right, next question. Rhonda Flowers, we love Rhonda. I love Rhonda. Uh, This question seems obvious in a way, but I think it's a really important one to address, especially for people who have a regular practice, yoga practice, regular exercise, or she says, when you're sick, She said, I've had the stomach bug the last couple of days. Do you practice? And she gives a little green emoji. So I'll just tell you what I think. If you have a stomach bug, hell no. I mean, you know, like that is a case where I say, you need to rest and let this, the virus do its course. And you know, in the process, if you have a stomach bug, you're getting dehydrated, your muscles are being sapped. So rest. You're not gonna lose anything, especially if you've had a regular practice or regular exercise routine when you have a stomach bug. If you have a head cold, for instance, I would say do what feels right, but know that actually movement is probably gonna make it feel better to a degree. You don't wanna get to the point where you're panting or you've over, it's that same stress curve. Like you might, you're probably gonna do something at 60, 70% of what you would normally do. But a lot of people think, if they're feeling sick, to just lay in bed, and I would say it really is not necessarily the case. For a lot of when you're when you're hit with something, unless you're fully exhausted and need that sleep, movement can really help. It helps move, you know, the lymphatic system, uh, move out some of those foreign particles, invaders. But yeah, again, do it to like sixty percent. You don't have to go full out and know that you're gonna what you're gonna come back in shape. So don't worry about it. But the stomach bug, Rhonda, just stay in bed and do whatever comes, you know, like it's lots of things are going to happen. And then when you're recovering, say you're no longer needing to throw up or go to the bathroom, then you need to ramp up accordingly. Like it's your whole immune system has been really turned upside down. And with that, you've got electrolyte imbalances. Again, that dehydration, you're just it really blows in every way. Like it really knocks you down. And so just be gentle. Start with like 15 minutes when you start to feel better and you're not going to need to go to the bathroom or anything. And then just move up from there, but give yourself lots of time to rest.
2: I think that's the hardest part, you know, coming back after an injury. I'll never forget. I was in PT school training for a marathon was like getting ready to go on a, you know, one of my first clinicals. And I had to get, or I was scheduled to get the chickenpox virus. Now, Laura, I did not ever have chickenpox growing up. I was 25 years old, 25 years old. Wow. We went skiing. I got sick, thought it was the flu, ended up getting chickenpox at 25. I was running. I ran 17 miles on a training run and then got hit with chickenpox. It knocked me flat on my ass for two weeks and I could do nothing. And going back to running, I could go 3 miles and that was it. You know, what I mean, and so we need to recognize here was this was this person, 25 years old, super fit, got this nasty virus and then in 2 weeks time I went from running 17 miles to 3 and I was dying. So know, it took me a while. I think I got back up to maybe 10 or 13 and I just kind of went and did that marathon, walk ran it because I paid for it, blah, blah, blah. But you know, just that recognition that in many ways, our body is amazing, but it is easier to uh, atrophy and to decondition very fast compared to the time it takes to recondition. So just be mindful of that. But I agree with you. If it's a head cold, if it's something that You know, you're able to still move around. You just feel like crap. I think it feels nice to move on your mat in a much reduced manner. But stuff like that, where it's a nasty virus, you're truly bedridden, rest. That's what your body needs. And then that recovery, just prepare that it's, and especially now with COVID, that's the other thing we're seeing. We don't know this virus, you know, how it's affecting people. It's very different. You have to just listen to your body and, you know, be as smart as you can. Within the constraints of you know your heart, your lungs, how you feel. I think that's so
0: smart. I remember reading somewhere one time, and I I don't know if this is accurate, but it actually seems really accurate. Like if you're down for two weeks, it's going to take four weeks to recover. It's almost like twice the time that you're down will take you to recover, and that's like average. So some people might be more. So I do think like, and I wrote an article about this, and I was doing research for the article. It was about. What happens if the bot, like in bed rest, if you were like, didn't, because it was really about movement, how important movement is for vitality. And it was frightening to see what happens. Like if you're bedridden for a month, what happens to your organs, your, obviously that includes your breathing, your endurance, your nervous system. It's, you know, we are made to move. And the unfortunate thing is that you do have to rest when you're recovering but I think what your your point is so important that there's a big hit on being all the systems, and so it's like starting up slowly again. You know, going into first gear, like seeing oh, how you so do hard. with that. You know, and that's really hard when you're like, wait, a month ago I was doing all this stuff, and it's like it'll come, but it's going. Sometimes it's going to be like you know a little bit of a crawl until you get there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you think about how long it took to train to get there. You know, It's kind of like, yeah, you're starting all over again. It's disheartening, but stick with it. Your body's amazing and it it will do its best to recover as fast as it can. Yeah. Steph
0: Peterson 5 asks a great question. She says, when you have in-person classes, are they heated? Personally, heat triggers a migraine for me, but it seems to be in every studio. I don't feel that it's helpful and I'd rather build my own heat, but would love to hear your thoughts on heated yoga classes. Well, I can address this and I, I know that everybody's individual about this. So I actually, my research in graduate school was specific about heat and its impact on soft tissue and then therefore performance. So the idea was if you use superficial heat to warm up muscle and the muscle tendinous junction, would that heat then provide more flexibility? So that your increased range of motion would lead to increased power production, right? So it's like if you take a little spectrum and then you open it up, you open up the potential for more power. And the conclusion was no, it did not. So and a part, a big part of that, and, and a lot of this has been, you know, delved into much more, is that superficial heat doesn't change the connective tissue. It can warm it up. It can better prepare it so that it can become more pliable, but there's not a change, and therefore there's not a change in like the actual length, and then the actual strength. And that that got me thinking a lot when I would practice in studios where it was just like, and I'm talking miserably hot, like 103. And I thought, wow, people are just cooking in here. Your brain is registering how hot you are but your tissues are not actually changing. So your brain thinks you're hotter than you are and you overstretch. And this, that was my kind of like, you know, hypothesis, just like witnessing stuff. And then lo and behold, over the years, how many people have I seen from Bikram classes that have come because they literally popped their hamstring, you know, because of the extreme hamstring stretches. And they, they they didn't think about it at the time. It felt great. And then they literally could not move the next day. So there's been also you know studies on this. So I think the thing is, what I concluded is it's nice to have some warmth. So at our studio, we would set it about seventy nine. And let me tell you, people would complain it was too hot at seventy nine. Jeez, if I wanted it to get a little bit heat hotter for preparing for kind of more movement, like say, in a backbending, where I really wanted everybody to get fully heated, and yeah, I agree with you fully, you know, that stuff that your own body heat generating inside. I always say it's like, even though I'm vegan, it's like cooking a turkey. You know, if, Even if the skin is sizzling, you don't just think, oh, that turkey's cooked. You actually put the thermometer into the core and register there. So it's that core temperature rising and the movement that creates friction by pulling on the tendon, the tendon on the bone, that creates heat and that creates the potential for change around the surrounding tissues. I certainly think heat makes you feel more adaptable, but I do think when it's way too hot, it fools your brain. You think you're just feeling so loose and and I think for the most part that's a very false sense and that's a recipe for danger. And getting a migraine, your body is like we don't want to be overheated. Think about it. That's why we sweat. We're always trying to maintain homeostasis. So you're, you're in this heated class, often poorly ventilated, by the way, other people breathing, and your poor brain is like, I just want you to fucking cool down. Like, I'm going to get you to sweat. And that's the focus. So the brain is kind of busy with the just trying to get you to be at homeostasis. And that's why I think all those signals to like in-range emotion and all that are really diminished. So I think it can be a potentially dangerous Place for people who don't have that responsiveness anyway, and for somebody like you who heat is creating a migraine, yeah, I you know you need to stay away from there. Now I'm going to let Kristen talk because I know you do like heat- heated classes to a degree, and you could talk about the benefits of them.
2: Yeah, so you know definitely at the studio, yeah, we kept it 77, 79, and people were complaining. People would, but people would like fight for the spots away from the heat or people that like the heat. So there are people I think who are better thermoregulators. Myself and my husband are two classic examples. He's not a great thermoregulator. So he sweats like... He actually is probably pretty good. He has to sweat more. I don't. I I don't have to sweat as much. Um, And we're both in the same room doing the same amount of work. He's just a bigger guy. So you know he does not like those hotter classrooms. But I will admit every now and then, and I don't do this regularly, but I like to go to a hot yoga class. I don't like the Bikram hot. I like the like 95 to but to where it's still you're able to do a flow. But I'm telling you what I'm not doing in those classes is I'm not doing any type of plyo, not doing anything that I'm I'm really not even going into deep because I know better. I'm not going into deep soft tissue. I just like it because I don't sweat very much. And so sometimes I like to go in there and sweat, but I don't get those side effects that Stacy's talking about. I don't get headaches. If that gave me a headache, no way I wouldn't be in there. my husband. When we go to these, we like to travel and go try different studios. You know, there are times he has to walk out and because he, his brain is telling him, I'm, you know, you start getting lightheaded, uh, this and that. So, you know, I think if you're going to do hot yoga, it's not going to be lit yoga because we are, our goal is to heat you up from the core. Like you said, people are sweating plenty in a 77 degree room. I don't like doing yoga in the cold because I do think we need that body heat. We need to be able to retain it, especially towards the end where we're getting maybe into a little bit more deeper posture than we start at the beginning. So, you know, having an intelligently built class that starts to build the heat first, then goes into mobility, then goes and then, you know, builds up to where by the end you're ready for what you're doing that matters to where we don't need to heat a room because we're doing it naturally and we're doing it intelligently. So we're not ever, to your point, going to go to those areas where like, because I'll admit, I'm like, geez, I feel great when I'm in those hot rooms and I could go deeper, but I know better. So I don't. Yeah. So that's, you know, you uh, it, it can really fool you. Um, so my recommendation is maybe every now and then treat yourself to that. If you want, like, like you would a sauna, you just sort of want to sweat.
0: I've done the exact but, same thing. When I like when I would visit my parents, their, the closest studio happened to be Heated Vinyasa. It wasn't Bikram. And it was also 90 to 95. And it was, to your point, like it wasn't vigorous. I mean, we're sweating yeah. a lot, but you couldn't do what we do. And I've taught at a hot... I've gone and done a work weekend workshop at two hot studios. And both of them said, I would love to do your classes here I don't think we could handle it. And I was like, you'd have to, you know, and there are studios that have a heated and non-heated room. You would have to do the type of yoga we do in a non-superheated like super heated room. But like Kristen said, I have enjoyed those heated classes when it was, because I'm also, especially now that I'm older, I really lean towards being cold versus hot. I just have less body fat on me now. I'm just cold. You know, so that warmth mm-hmm. is feeling really great. It's like a treat. Um, yeah, it's like a treat. So I think, you know, and if you have a migraine, you're just going to have to not be in those classes. And I think there are certain areas of the country um, in the U.S. I know that parts of Canada, same, really, you know, heated studios are a really big thing. I think COVID is going to turn that in, you know, because a lot of those heated studios, I dare say, just because of the cost of it, are kind of germ- creators. Petri dish. Uh, Petri dish. (laughs) I would not, you could not pay me to go in a studio that has (laughs) a lot of heat and poor ventilation. No way. So I think that will upend some of that. And I think um, just for yourself, just figure out what feels right. So, you know, putting the heat up a little bit. I have like a heater here that I have. Yeah. That I like on a cold day, I love having blow on me. And after doing the core stuff, after doing our reset, Sun Cell 1, <laughs> I'm like, off. whoa, turn it off. It's, it's so yeah. fast. It takes 15 minutes and then that becomes too much. So it's great to like, to Kristen's point, to come in like, because if you're really, really cold, your body's also focusing on trying to not make you cold. So you can't get into the moves as well because you're just like kind of clinching. So it's really nice to kind of bring that buffering between being too cold and being too hot. Great question. That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much. Thank you, KB. Always a pleasure. You're welcome. Always. As always, we're pulling for you.